This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. In recent decades in the United States, we've seen a series of close national elections, with the pendulum of power shifting from one party to the other as a result of those tight contests. The rancor between the sides of our political debate seems to be constantly ratcheting up. Political pundits who are more willing to express extreme views and criticizing the opposition seem to get the most airtime. Comedians explicitly attack policy stances of politicians and occasionally make cutting remarks about their appearance. Some politically motivated violent acts have occurred. Democratic Congress Rep. Gabby Giffords shot and maimed in 2010. Republican Congressman Steve Scalise shot and gravely injured in 2017. The American Psychological Association has started to survey the public on political stress. And here were some of the results around the 2016 national elections. In an October 2016 poll, just before the vote that year, 52% of American adults reported that the election was a very or somewhat significant source of stress. Nearly 40% said that political and cultural discussions on social media caused them stress, resulting in stress-like symptoms. Headaches, feelings of uneasiness or anxiety. We also saw a lot of people report insomnia, you know, difficulty sleeping. In a January 2016 poll, 57% of people polled said they were stressed out about the current political climate. 66%, regardless of party affiliation, were stressed out about the future of our nation. Depression includes a sense of powerlessness and helplessness. Anxiety is nervousness, uh, agitation, uh, can include a sense of fear and worry. And all of these can take a physical as well as an emotional hold on ourselves. In May of 2016, 26% of working adults said they felt tense or stressed out as a result of political discussions at work since the more recent election, an increase of nearly 10 points from September of 2016. More uh, stories about getting into arguments with family members and co-workers in some cases, which were on the rise. And in all the surveys, it seemed that respondents who spent more time with social media and cable news were more likely to be experiencing this stress. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we'll hear more from therapists Nancy Molitor and Irene Green, who you heard excerpted there, and also therapist Bob Thompson, all interviewed by our Suzanne Kreider, who sought out ideas about how to reduce the stress and how to stay engaged in politics in a more peaceful and effective way. Since exposure to social media and television seemed to suggest an uptick in anxiety, let's hear what each of our three guests had to say about that. First, Suzanne Kreider with Nancy Molitor. Nancy, media. How much media is too much? We know that anecdotally, that what we see in our practices, particularly people who, who, again, consume a lot of social media and engage in social media, they find themselves sort of drawn to it. They know they shouldn't engage in as much of it. They know they shouldn't be up all night, you know, watching cable news, but they're drawn to it. It's almost a compulsivity to, to keep watching. They'll, they'll also admit that when they turn it off, they feel better, but then they're drawn back to it again. We can certainly see the impact that it has on this group of people's health, you know, in, insomnia, um, leading to late night binge eating, leading to weight gain, uh, and then stress about being overweight. So it's, it's kind of a vicious cycle. Uh, I actually do recommend that they think hard about how much are they consuming. 
Albuquerque, New Mexico therapist Bob Thompson. You know, we, we consume with our ears and our eyes and our mouth every day. And if a person's consuming stuff that feels toxic to them, we have to f decide if that makes any sense. If I'm eating poison, if it feels like poison, and I'm continuing to eat it, and I'm asking myself to eat more of it, I have to wonder about that. So I help people think about how much of this is good for you. You know, if it's troubling you, and you're adding more to it, does that make sense? So then people can adjust uh, their own uh, amounts based on what feels right to them. I suggest that people take a break from social media. Irene Green whose practice focuses on LGBTQ clients in the Minneapolis area. And that they intentionally make an arrangement, even with a friend, if they are worried that they're going to miss something, which is usually the thing, I'm going to miss something big and juicy, that they make an arrangement with a friend to let them know whatever might fit in that definition of something big and juicy, but that they take an intentional break from social media, whether that be putting their phones away for an hour or a weekend. What if someone's on social media and they're like flaming, like they're upset about something or they're unfriending people? What would you recommend in that case? Well, I actually think there's nothing wrong with unfriending people. So I think if people have a sense that they don't want to be engaging with someone else, that they have a right and a choice to do that. That's part of the nature of social media, theoretically, is that it gives us extra choices and we can choose to engage or not. One of the reasons for taking a break in social media is that there is recent brain research about the fact that when our brains are told something over and over again, even though initially we know it to be factually untrue, that when we hear something over and over again, our brain starts changing the facts of that not being true into telling us that it is true. So a re repeated uh, involvement with, like, for example, things that aren't factual but are presented as facts does wear on our brains, and we start shifting uh, how we think about things. So uh, having that consciousness is very important in what we listen to and participate in because we want to make sure that we are participating, engaging, and listening in things that are actually factually true. Hydrating and being in nature are actually two other important things for self-care. Being in nature is something that's important for self-care because we are natural beings and there's recent research in the last couple of years about how important it is for us to reconnect with nature, whether that's take a walk, read a book, look at a picture. If someone is imprisoned behind four walls in the state prison system and they're not able to go outside and take a walk, if they have access or ability to even conjure up a scene from nature that can be very healing and renourishing and replenishing, at least for that moment. So communing with nature, it might sound like it's lingo kind of thing, but it is very important for us as animals in the world. You said you're okay with people unfriending people on social media. It's We have a right to pick who we want to interact with. And some people would say, well, we need to interact with people who disagree with us. How do we find a balance between these two ideas? That is a perfectly fine choice for people who want to engage with other folks who have a different point of view. I, I, I believe people have a choice about who they want to contact and, and, and connect with or not. 
So, yes, if, if both people are interested in conversations about sincerely and legitimately hearing and respecting the other point, person's point of view, that's a, that's a certain kind of conversation. If one person wants to, uh, wants to, believes that they can change or their intention is to change the other person's point of view, that may or may not be true, but they can certainly try to engage in that conversation. Um, the current social political situation has caused a lot of problems in many families where there are political differences. And this has caused a lot of pain. And certainly if people want to communicate with each other and try to maybe accept those differences. I've, I have people in my family and people that I've worked with who have decided we're going to agree to disagree for the sake of the larger sake of love and goodness in our family. But interpersonally, people are, can be very, very hurt by someone crossing out their vote at the poll that says who they can love or where they can go to the bathroom or where they can live. It's absolutely essential that people find ways, common touch point. Again, Chicago area therapist Nancy Molitor. Especially if they're in a situation where they're feeling increasingly polarized, whether it's at work, uh, in their community, in within their own family. I'm hearing lots of very sad stories where people are coming to get, you know, being invited to graduation parties and weddings and very important events that people have looked, families have looked forward to for a long time. And somehow somebody brings up the subject of politics and the whole tenor of the situation goes downhill. Uh, people arguing at, at commencement ceremonies and um, not talking to each other. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very, very sad from an emotional standpoint. Um, and these things can take a toll on future generations. Um, we know that families who cannot pull together and um, avoid complete cutoffs eventually end up psychologically very unhealthy. And future future generations of of families can, um, you know, not keep in touch with each other, which causes tremendous uh, pain. Um, uh, for for years and years, and often this haunts individuals and affects their ability to to trust and to move forward with their own lives. So, there's a lot of consequences I think that can come um, from this divisiveness if if um, we don't we don't find a way to find some common ground. In many cases, what I tell people is, you know, if you know that your brother-in-law feels very differently politically than you do, stay away from bringing up that subject. And it seems obvious, but you would be amazed at how many people don't realize <laughs> that that's not a good idea. Um, and Or they, they get drawn into it. They let themselves get baited and drawn into a discussion. If you know that you're very, you feel very strongly and you've had difficulties with certain individuals, be careful when you're entering a social situation where you know they're going to be there. doesn't mean you shouldn't say hi and talk with them, but there just may be certain things that may not be, but should be off limits. Um, I've even told people to make a plan, make an exit strategy. Um, if you can make a joke about it and, and keep it light, that's even better. But, you know, so, you know, so Uncle Joe, we're not going to go there today and talk about, you know, what you feel about, you know, this political situation. Um, let's just talk about something else. We agree on. You know, have a strategy if the situation gets heated, how you're going to stay calm and uh, whether, in fact, you have to extricate yourself um, and, or whether you can find a way to just move on. And if it's a big party, move on and talk to someone else. Um, but this is particularly a problem at work, too. I'm hearing stories of people who are getting into arguments with their coworkers and they're 
their bosses get involved. And um, I had a situation in my hometown where the local car dealer, um, who's excellent, known as an excellent service place, um, had to put a sign up in their waiting area um, saying, you know, due to the current political climate, um, we're not, um, you know, we've turned off our TV and it doesn't, you know, it's not going to be showing cable news. Um, so you're welcome to watch, you know, <laughs> you know, entertainment programming, but we won't be able to have those, uh, you know, channels available in the waiting room. This is a topic of a lot of conversation in my town. So I, I suspect there's other situations similar. Nancy, when you say we should find common touch points, as psychologists, give us some examples of what those could be. Well, that's a very good question. I would say things like um, issues that, that you you may sort of all agree with, issues that have to do with maybe improving the quality of the food we eat, or maybe there's a, a something uh, new in town that has to do with, um, you know, the roads are better, or the school is improving, or there's a community fair, or an art fair that everybody wants to talk about because it's, it, you know, it's showing things, you know, you're seeing some things for the first time that you haven't seen before. Um, most people can agree around things like children's well-being, uh, you know, eating healthy food, <laughs> promoting, uh, you know, uh, cooperation and volunteerism, perhaps in some area that, um, you know, there's usually something that you can sort of, and, and sometimes people can agree to disagree and still have a collegial discussion. Um, you know, there's, there's situations where you don't have to avoid discussing politics if you can set a, a guidelines ahead of time. You know, we're going to agree to disagree on X, Y, and Z, but we can agree on, uh, you know, our, our kids need a better public school, right? Or or something that, that you know, is, is uh, not going to be conflictual. And there's usually things that aren't conflictual. It just takes a little more time sometimes to, to find them. We often do see, Nancy, though, that there is conflict. Maybe even like schools can be political or even food can be political. That's right. So that's where you kind of agree to disagree. Well, you might agree on the overarching concept that healthy food is good, right? Um, or clean water is good. Uh, but, you know, who's causing the problem, you might disagree on, right? And, and so um, if you can have that kind of discussion, that's terrific, right? Also being able to listen. We've talked about talking, but I think the other piece uh, that's very important, I mean, two-thirds of a constructive conversation is having a, being a good listener, right? Um, that's what we tell people in marital therapy. The reason people get into trouble in relationships, um, close relationships, is often not because they're not, they're not talking or they're not communicating. It's because they're not listening to their partner or to their colleagues, right? So, so active listening, not feeling like you have to jump in and cut somebody off or um, try to restate the, the argument, but just being able to listen. Um, and, I, and I tell people, you know, yeah, you, you know, all you do is watch CNN and your brother-in-law watches Fox. Maybe you should try watching something other than CNN just to see what the other side is saying, right? And sometimes that can be a breakthrough. Right. And, and if they can hear some of the arguments that, the, you know, that um, people they don't agree, they think they don't agree with, they can. That's another way to find some common ground. 
Uh, so uh, that, that again, it's, it's really trying to put yourself also in the other person's shoes. If you care about somebody, even if you may violently disagree with them about something, if you really care about them, hopefully you want to try to understand them. And at least, again, part of understanding is listening and also having empathy, trying to, again, put yourself in that other person's shoes, which can be very difficult, you know, if it's a very divisive issue. Therapist Nancy Molitor. More from her and all of our other guests commenting on dealing with stress from politics. Can we craft more peace of mind when politics don't go our way? Can we talk with our political opposites? It's all open for discussion when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider. And today Suzanne is talking with three therapists about some surveys citing that people are reporting more stress over politics and difficulties talking about politics with family and coworkers. Therapists Nancy Molitor from the Chicago area, Irene Green from the Minneapolis area, both of them have told Suzanne that some degree of avoidance of those who disagree with you might be in order or at least careful, conscious conversation. New Mexico therapist Bob Thompson has more to say about that. Well, of course we should be talking to each other. In the absence of talk, we have oftentimes aggressive action. And that's not one of the things that I think is useful to any of us. So if we're going to resolve differences of opinion or different belief systems, we have to talk about it. We have to come to understand. I always think of Gandhi when the Civil War was going on and he was starving himself as a protest. And the two leaders of the factions came to him and said, you, you have to start eating. And he said, well, I will as soon as the, as soon as the Civil War stops, I'll, I'll start eating again. And one of the men said, you know, there's no, there's no uh, way out for me because I've done horrible things. I've killed women and children and babies and and Gandhi said, well, there is a way for you. And the guy looked at him like he was out of his mind. He's been starving, so clearly he must be out of his mind. And he said, what you have to do, he said, there's thousands of orphans out there now because of this war. He said, you have to go out and you have to get a child who's an orphan. But it has to be a child from the other side. And you have to bring them into your home and raise them with that religion that you're fighting about their religion. That teaches understanding in a profound way. I think that's what we have to do in the world when we have all these people with different ideas. If we're not communicating and really understanding each other because we can't listen to each other, then trouble happens. 
Bob, I'm digging that you mentioned nonviolence and, you know, I'm digging that you mentioned Gandhi. And isn't that a political view? That's a human view, you know? I mean, was he, was he operating uh, in the midst of political issues? Of course. But he was talking about really people understanding people. It was, it was a deeper, I think a much deeper way of understanding what's happening. And, and, and some possible ways to manage it. You know, he's suggesting if you are really in disagreement with somebody to the point where you'd be willing to do violence, it probably would make sense to really come to understand that way much better than you do because you, you probably don't. And Bob, what if you want to engage, say go to lunch or talk to a person who's on the political spectrum opposite of you? I think we, we engage with people who have very different ideas than us all the time because each one of us is so unique. My own sense about what helps uh, communication go better when people have very different views is to be able to articulate clearly what the other person's view is to the point where they're saying, you really do understand where I'm coming from and why I'm coming from there. That tends to have defenses go down. The person doesn't feel like they have to turn the volume up and scream louder because I didn't hear them, because they know I did hear them, because I've just articulated exactly their position to the point where they're shaking their head. That's exactly right. We've made it right for them. And then we're in a position to talk about what it's like from our point of view, and if, and it usually does, start to stir them up because it's so different than their own, we can say, did I understand you? And they will probably say, yeah. And then you say, well, then try to afford me the opportunity of understanding me too. It helps. It sounds like you're talking about reflective listening. I'm a trainer. I've trained people on this. I've had people in the groups I trained say, that's baloney. I'm not doing reflective listening. That's fakey. I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, people say that all the time because it's such a different language. They've grown up learning a a totally different language and we're asking them to learn a new language. And it feels strange. And they become uncomfortable with it because they don't know how to do it. And so they say, "This this is really not real, it's not right. We say, well, of course it's not right. That's because you have never done it this way. If I want to learn to speak a foreign language, it's going to feel very odd to me until I learn it, then it'll be fine. Again, Suzanne with Irene Green, therapist from Minneapolis, about what else to do to relieve our political stress. Because I'm thinking, you know, I could sit home and whine, or I could do something, or I could just feel my sadness. I'm kind of confused, like, how much do I feel my sadness, or how much do I do something? First and foremost, I'm going to quote Audre Lorde, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. So my, my first and foremost answer to what you're saying is radical self-care. And that I teach a lot of workshops on radical self-care, is that folks who want to be making choices about being active in their communities or want to address the sense of personal apathy that they feel as an oppressed individual, that they take seriously their own sense of self and self-care. And that that's not selfish, that is essential to creating a 
a strong connection with others to do social activism and to keep momentum going for change from the bottom up. So I'm a strong believer in grassroots bottom-up organizing. So if that for someone means that they attend their their first rally, I have clients who hadn't ever attended a, a march or a rally and they have been actively involved in doing a number of things or they've attended the Women's March, which might have been the first action that they did in that kind of way. Many people are making phone calls. They're having potlucks. They're having connections with their neighbors all the way up to running for office, doing broad community education on how to run for office. And if a person can donate $2 or $2 to someone on the street who, who needs $2 or $2 to a campaign of their choice, then that's another option as well. In terms of political stress, Bob, it seems like I've seen people who, once they act, their stress level lowers. So they're really upset about something and then they donate or volunteer or take action. What's the reason they seem calmer? Uh, Because people don't feel so uh, powerless when they do something. You know, if they do something destructive, they will feel uh, like they'd had some power. If they do something constructive, they will feel like they had some power. You know, taking some kind of an action where you don't feel helpless is useful. Uh, The kind in the course of the action that we take can be really helpful or really not so helpful. What else do you want to say that you haven't said? Oh, uh, I'm sure that there's plenty of things that haven't been said. I... I'm, uh, I'm very encouraged that we as a community are starting to talk about what I think are really critical and essential issues to make this a better country. So I'm for that. It seems like people aren't talking to each other, though. It seems like people on opposite ends of the political spectrum are not talking. I think people are listening. And I think that there's been an absence of listening uh, whether people are actually engaging is you know, like talking is sort of the next step, but I think people are beginning to listen to each other in a different way. That's hopeful. I think we need to encourage that. How do we encourage people listening to each other? I think you're doing it today. Without screaming, because sometimes people scream. Oh, let me ask you one more thing about town halls. I've seen these YouTube videos of town halls, and people are booing, or they're standing with their back to the speaker. Do you recommend that or not? I think people try to do the things that they think will uh, have some kind of an impact in a direction that makes sense to them. I think what would be good would be if we, in this society, could figure out a way to really listen to each other and really talk with each other. Uh, we get into shouting matches, you know, and it's, I'm going to turn up the volume on my, on my idea, and maybe I can drown out your idea, and then you're going to turn up the volume on your, and nobody really hears anything. I think it would be good if we really started thinking more uh, carefully about how Uh, we have been dealing with each other and try to start doing it in a better way. So let's say you're at a town hall and there are maybe 
200 other people there and they're listening to the legislator. What would you do if you were upset with the legislator? Well, I think people go, if I was upset, if I was upset enough to go and say what I needed to say, I think I would try to communicate as clearly as I could my position. I've done my part. I don't necessarily go in thinking that it's going to change things, but I go in thinking that I have something that I would like to contribute and I do my part by saying it. Then I will be satisfied. And you don't get into the whole mob thing, like you do what everyone else does to make it seem louder? You wouldn't do that? I I don't tend to, personally, I don't tend to operate that way. I think there are people who feel more comfortable in a group because there's more of a sense of power in a group. Uh, But no, I wouldn't do that. Dr. Nancy Moulter, have you ever seen this level of stress in your years of practice? No, I have not. And that's an excellent question. Certainly have not seen this level of stress even after 9-11. What happened after that is, you know, after a period of, of reflection and, and grief and, and mourning collectively as a, as a country, we sort we pulled together. Um, there was this sort of a collective sense that um, we want to support each other. We don't, you know, people may have different feelings about what our country is doing, but but we want to come together. This is very different. This this period in, of our country is, you know, what we're seeing is people are feeling very divided, and um, people are, you know, again, the results show that, you know, when 66 percent, when two thirds of the of the survey respondents say that they're very or very or somewhat seriously concerned about the future of our nation, um, you know, that's that's pretty significant. Dr. Nancy Walter, you mentioned empathy. I'm curious, too, about screaming, because let's say you we see screaming on TV with pundits. Mm-hmm. We see screaming at, like, town halls. Mm-hmm. So we see that. And then sometimes people take that screaming into their conversations. So one person's talking and then the other one just starts screaming. Well, I disagree. Now, as a psychologist, what do you recommend the listener does? Well, the listener and the the, the person talking, right, both of them, obviously screaming, <laughs> I don't care what the, the topic is, um, is not helpful, right? It doesn't promote any kind of healthy discourse. It certainly doesn't promote empathy. It does the opposite. It pushes the other person away. One of the big things we focus on in, in, in any kind of communication that we do, um, therapy or otherwise, is to t- literally teach people how important it is to keep your voice at a certain decibel level and calm and um, kind of even if it's not flat but but calm and even right um, and so many people when they they don't even realize right that their voice goes up like this right when they're <laughs> arguing and and that particularly women tend to get unfortunately kind of our voice goes up and it gets kind of shrill and uh, you know lots of research has shown that in those high decibel levels some people literally can't hear right? Uh, Particularly men, a lot of older men uh, have trouble hearing that kind of high decibel level. So I've worked with a lot of older adults. And one of the big things we work on is how to what quality to keep your voice at what level to keep your voice at, and and the pitch and the tone and the whole thing, because it really makes a difference. Certainly, it makes a difference in any any context. So yeah, screaming, obviously, it's excruciatingly painful for some people, literally painful to their ear. But it's certainly very aggravating to everybody. Um, and it t- 
completely turns them off. Uh, the same concept, if said in a very calm tone, um, even with a bit of humor, can can really make a big difference in how that the listener is going to um, uh, react to it um, and, and, and whether you're going to get anything accomplished or not. And what do you recommend a person does who's listening to someone and suddenly they start screaming? Well, ideally, if they have a good relationship, you know, and there's a level of respect in the relationship, I, they they don't match the tone. Let me back up. People typically, if they're in an animated conversation, they unconsciously start to match, right, the energy level and the tone in the other person's communication. And so the key is, if the other person is screaming and, you know, the listener should avoid trying to ramp up their response so they can compete with them because then they're going to just cross each other out, right? And they're both going to work each other up. So they, it's hard to do, but the key is to stay calm if you're the listener. Don't let yourself get drawn in to the, to the tone or to the decibel level or the content and just try to, you know, just kind of tell yourself, okay, when they're done screaming, I'm going to calmly talk, try to talk them down, not tell them to talk down, but my voice is going to try to talk them down. And it really works. We do this a lot in therapy. This therapist models that behavior by keeping his or her voice calm with both couples, you know, people are yelling at each other. And you'd be amazed at how that can work. Um, And then you point out if they, you know, if they, once they stop screaming and they can hopefully listen, then you calmly point out, did you hear what the other one said right now? I, I don't think you probably did, you know. Um, and someone might say, well, I couldn't but hear because they were screaming and they were making me so mad. And, um, and So if you kind of point it out to people, again, if they care about the person they're screaming at, they will often correct it. They can, they can correct it. It's a very correctable behavior. Um, and if you can't, if the person won't stop screaming, then you have to ask them to stop. Or you have to politely say you have to extricate yourself from the conversation, right, if, if you can't work out some agreement on that. This is Peace Talks Radio. Today we're talking about political stress with psychologist Dr. Nancy Molitor. She's near Chicago, Illinois. Nancy, talk about humor, because some people spend time watching late night shows or watching on YouTube and seeing certain kinds of humor about certain kinds of politicians. As psychologists, what is your opinion on that? Well, you know, that in general, if one can, um, you know, have a sense of humor about one's, even one, the person that one feels positively about and, and, and strongly about, when that person is being parodied, if they can look at that as a exercise in entertainment and making a point, uh, but, it, it, but it's not destructive parody or satire, I think that can be a good thing. That can, if you can get people to laugh together uh, when the person they care about is being parodied or the issue is being parodied and not take offense at it, I think that could be terrific. The problem is that I think sometimes, you know, some of that parody or that satire, um, you know, for some people goes, uh, you know, pushes up against a line of respect and it, it's no longer funny, right? So I have read about the, the difficulty that our satirists are having right now in this political climate because they want to be funny, they want to do their job, but it's, it's tricky, right? There's, there's a, nobody quite knows when they've gone past that line, 
And that line is different for some people than others, um, you know. And there's been some, you know, pretty intense uh, satire and parody going on. And uh, again, you know, humor is a, is a, you know, is often in the minds and the eyes of the beholder. And uh, I, I think it's a healthy thing for, for the most part. I think it's important for people to be able to laugh at ourselves. And it's part of being in a democracy that we live in, that we pride ourselves on, that we can have people that can go on TV and, parrot, you know, do a satire of the, the, the person who's in charge of the country um, and, and not get arrested, right? I think it's a good thing that we have that. But, um, I, you know, people respond to it, you know, I think very differently. Is it important to amp up your filter, like on clever parody versus what sort of mean-spirited or a cheap shot? Because even if you're agreeing with the comedian, should we have a better filter? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, in general, yes, I think probably it's good to have a, uh, you know, your filter up. And I don't think we should boycott. I, that's just my personal opinion. I don't think boycotting somebody because they've maybe gone a bit too far one time, um, even though you formerly liked what they were, you know, doing with their humor is, is a good thing. But but filtering, I think, is a good way of thinking about it is, you know, um, if something upsets you, if it, you know, we all know, right, we all know what individually offends us. And that's different from person to person. So um, if you are offended or you're upset or distressed, then, I, then I, you know, I think it's important to, to turn that off or don't look at that picture or don't watch that video or don't tell people you think it's cool and invite them to watch it or tell them, you know, or warn them that, you know, you felt that was a bit much, but maybe they want to look at it. Um, but I think it's an individual issue. But it's also just about overconsumption, what we talked about earlier. I do think that people are consuming more social media. They're consuming more uh, TV. Um, we have all these great options in TV and cable now. But, but, but if one is um, consuming a lot, they're passive. It makes them passive. There's nothing wrong with that. I personally love watching TV. But if you're, most of your free time is, is doing that, then you're passive. Um, you're taking it in, you're consuming it, but you're not, you know, acting on your world. You're not acting on your environment. You're not talking to people. You're not calling a friend. Um, I, you know, you're not, if you're texting all the time, but you're not actually talking to people, <laughs> you know, that's another concern uh, that many of us have because you're mm -hmm. not engaging. You're not being active. Um, and also the social engagement with people you care about is a very good thing that protects us against poor health. That's actually a very positive thing to do. So I think in this right in what we're going through right now, the best thing you can do is, as we talked about, is to try to find something you feel passionate about and engage. But also stay connected to your friends and family that you do feel you know, good about and you feel safe in the with and, and, and engage with them, not just through social media, but through the good old fashioned telephone or even better meeting in person and having some dialogue face to face. So I think that that's really one of the best things any of us can do at this point in time. Nancy Molitor, therapist from the Chicago area. And when we come back, we'll have one more round of questions and comments from each of our three guests, generally growing out of this conversation about political stress in the USA. More in a moment on Peace Talks Radio.
It's Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, along with our series co-founder, Suzanne Kreider. Suzanne had wide-ranging conversations with three therapists about surveys showing people reporting more personal angst and stress over politics. Here's a little more from each of Suzanne's conversations with Nancy Molitor from Chicago, Bob Thompson from Albuquerque, and first Irene Green from the Minneapolis, Minnesota area. Irene, you lead workshops on compassion fatigue. What's that? Compassion fatigue is an emotional and physical and psychological state that generally is helpers of people who are in trauma endure and develop over a long period of time with working with trauma survivors, EMTs, veterinarians, therapists uh, who work with folks who deal with trauma often experience compassion fatigue. It's an accumulation of burnout and emotional exhaustion from being empathetic for a long period of time. Give us a little bit of what you can tell people to do or what happens in the workshops. Well, I'll I'll give you a concrete example of what happened with me around the issue of compassion fatigue. I'm lesbian and I work with um, primarily LGBTQ folks, people of color, social activists in my practice as a psychotherapist and a trainer and educator. And I've been doing this for about 30 years. I work with a lot with folks who have endured trauma. I started with working with folks who, who are sexual abuse and domestic abuse survivors. And now I have the privilege in my work to be able to choose the population that I work with. And so the majority of the folks that I work with, like I said, are LGBTQ and Um, June 12, 2016, when the shooting happened at the Orlando nightclub, I, as as a lesbian, knew that many, many, many people in my communities would be very upset and and very traumatized, vicarious, vicariously traumatized by what happened in Orlando. And the next Monday after that event that happened that weekend. I knew that my first client and every client thereafter, who because they identified LGBTQ and or were social justice people, would be very traumatized and need to talk about their experiences of trauma hour after hour after hour in in their session. So for me, hour after hour after clinical hour, I was helping people and people who were in my communities process their own trauma, PTSD, sadness, anger, fear, while simultaneously also trying to manage and process my own responses to what had happened that weekend. And that's an example of of compassion fatigue. In terms of what happened for me by about Thursday, I was fried. And so I am Actually, my nephew is gay, and he lives in Chicago, and I contacted him and asked him how he was doing about what happened because his age group was represented in the Orlando shooting, and he was very upset about it, and he's not been a, quote, political person generally in his life, but he showed me um, a picture, and he sent me a, a picture of a tattoo that he had gotten that day, which is a pink triangle, which is a sign of um, um, that the LGBT community has adopted um, for 
decades based on the Nazi um, symbol that they put on us when they put us in concentration camps. And we've reclaimed that pink triangle. So David had that pink triangle on his wrist, and he said, Aunt Rainey, will you also get a pink triangle? Hmm. And it meant a lot to me. The compassion fatigue and upsetness that I had felt that week really lifted in a certain kind of a way. And I'm getting to your point about what to do with compassion fatigue is that connecting with like-minded people and connecting with community is a very important part of healing and as well as taking breaks. I had connected with, with members of my community. I'm very, I have a very connected consultation group with other LGBT therapists. And so we had connected through the week and talked about what it was like to be on the chair side of the therapy couch and simultaneously helping our clients that, that way or that week. Irene, let me give you another situation. Let's say a person is profiling other people. I do this. I look at a person's car or how they talk or their appearance. What would you recommend about that profiling? I think it's inevitable that we, quote, profile others and make judgments about them. Um, as a white person, I know that I am conditioned to ha even viscerally have certain reactions if a person who happens to be a black male is walking down the street or and I, and I see and I'm, they're crossing my path. That person is crossing my path. My job, I believe, is to be socially conscious about my internal privilege and my reactions based on white supremacy. So I make lots of judgments, and I need to be conscious of that and aware of that. And some of them may or may not be accurate. I might make a judgment about someone who has voted a certain way that may or may not be accurate about that person if I'm making personal judgments about them to hurt me or harm me. There are definitely people who, have, who might make a vote at the poll that cancels out my vote to love who I want to love or my... Or my clients' choices about where they're going to live or where they're going to go to the bathroom. So that, that's a, those are choices that end up affecting people's life and well-being and welfare. So I'm, I might have personal issues against the choice. I believe in a sense of common humanity for everyone, no matter how they vote. So if a person has this conditioned response, we become conscious of what we're thinking and then... Do we do something about that? Once a, once a person understands their privilege, a light goes on, and it's really hard to go back. There is, in my experience, in working with folks who are dealing with their heterosexual privilege or dealing with their race privilege, their white privilege, their class privilege, when a person is intentional about wanting to learn about their privilege, which is a choice and a decision in and of itself. Many people who have privilege in this country do not accept or acknowledge that they have privilege. So right away, there's not, there's not gonna be a potential for change. And so someone needs to be able to recognize that they have privilege and then be willing to look at their white guilt and look at their white shame and understand their privilege and then hopefully use their privilege to create access and equality and justice for others who do not share that same privilege. Irene Green, whose practice focuses on LGBTQ clients in the Minneapolis area. 
people react quickly mm. and unconsciously. I do that myself. I honk my horn or I profile people. So what would you say about that? Albuquerque, New Mexico therapist Bob Thompson. Well, we know that from our early childhood, we have the capacity to react without having a higher level of understanding about things. So we would call it an impulse. And the objective, I think, in most most things that can be dangerous is we want to put as much space between the impulse and the action as possible so that we can really consider options. If I, if I have no space to think about what could I do, I'm very likely to do the first thing that comes to my mind, which isn't necessarily going to be the best thing. So we want to slow things down and put space between the desire to act and then decision to decide how to act. How do we put space in between the desire to act and the action? How do we put space in between them? Right. How do we not be impulsive? It's a training that we have to put ourselves into. Uh, show me a child that stops and thinks carefully before they act. There are not many because they don't have enough practice. But I don't think people are very different from each other around the world. I think if we we become more aware that it's important to slow down and really think carefully and maybe for a long period of time about important things before we decide to take an action, we're more than likely going to make a better decision. Yes. And how can people actually slow things down so they think about things and they think about, well, this will impact me, this will impact the other person? How do we take a person that is highly impulsive uh, and get them to change that way of being, it's hard. And they would have to really want to change it. Uh, I think a person who is impulsive, uh, and there are lots of different reasons why people are impulsive, uh, but in the absence of that particular person really deciding that that's not advantageous to themselves or the people around them, I don't think it's likely that that's going to change in that person. That's That's why we have systems that you know, kind of put boundaries around people who don't know how to put them around themselves. Reminds me of a joke. Uh, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? In this case, I'd say, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Just one, but the light bulb really has to want to change. Aren't there some people, though, that enjoy, not poison, but they enjoy bad news? I, I don't know that I would say that there are people who really enjoy bad news. I think sometimes people use difficult situations to as a defense against dealing with other feelings that they might be having if i'm really if i this is a an example that comes from one of my neighbors who had a horse and one day he went out and the horse stood on his foot and he said while that horse was standing on my foot i couldn't think about anything else I think sometimes people use difficult things in the world as a way of not thinking about anything else. Let's say someone does use media instead of thinking about their own feelings. So what solutions or suggestions would you make? I, I think it's important that people understand themselves really well. If I don't, if something's not conscious to me and it's troubling me, and I think that I'm managing it in a certain way that makes sense, but it doesn't really make sense until I know more about what's really happening inside of me. 
I think it makes sense to help people understand their own dynamics first. And then usually what they want to do is they want to channel that energy more directly at their own issues. Bob Thompson, I'm confused a little bit about therapy because do people come because they should know themselves or do people come because they want to change? And what should we do about political issues relating to either changing or knowing yourself? People come for all kinds of reasons. A lot of people come because they have something very specific that they want to address and they deal with that and then they don't come anymore. Some people come because they really want to have a deeper understanding of their own dynamics so that they can function more effectively in every aspect of their life. So there's a whole variety of reasons why people come. Uh, in terms of, of how do people manage their political understanding of the world, uh, I think that again varies tremendously depending on who the person is. What kind of family did they come from? What kind of communication were there uh, in their families of origin? How did conflicts get resolved when they were children? How did communication happen? It's very complicated. So can I blame my parents? <laughs> you can blame anybody that you want, but, Thank goodness. but does it do any good? <laughs> I think it's more oftentimes more effective to turn from blame to uh, becoming actively engaged in doing something that's more useful for yourself to feel better in the world. We can blame people forever, but does it really change anything in terms of how we feel? I'm not necessarily thinking it does. Again, Chicago area therapist Nancy Molitor. Dr. Nancy Molitor, it seems like there's a continuum. And on one side, it's like nonviolence and acceptance. On the other side, there's like indignation. I'm curious, as a psychologist, what you recommend. So we, ha we want to have some passion, mm -hmm. but we don't want to have so much anger and, like, mayhem. Mm -hmm. How do we find that passion? Well, I think passion is a good term, and I would say passion and engage constructive engagement is, you know, in addition to the passion, right? Um, I, I totally agree with you. Obviously, when somebody's passion uh, goes down the, you know, the, the, the place of becoming you know, continual anger, um, that's negative uh, for the individual, for their health, for their stress, but also it's not going to accomplish uh, what they probably want to accomplish. And it's, it's um, you know, anger is contagious. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a, it can be a very destabilizing emotion. Um, so, you know, indignation and, uh, uh, you know, concern, uh, you know, righteous anger, that's one thing. But when it gets to the point of being, uh, you know, bordering on hatred, then you go down that path, right? And I think the, there, but the, but the idea of trying to stay active, I do think that one thing I am hearing from a lot of my patients is they feel helpless, right? They feel helpless. They don't know what to do. They've even, they've gone on marches. They've done some things, but they don't feel like it's enough. And, and they're continuing to feel helpless and hopeless. And we do know that feeling helpless and hopeless is, is also a very negative emotion because it can lead to depression. It can lead to 
poor outcomes for health, all sorts of things. Uh, so people need to, you know, people need to stay engaged at the level that they are, you know, uh, they, they can. And for a lot of people, uh, they're saying, well, I don't feel there's anything I can do. I feel helpless because I want to be engaged. I want to be positive. But I don't know what to do, you know. And so we talk about that in, in sessions. And my colleagues around the country are talking about that because it's a health issue. Um, we know that being passive leads to poor health in general whether it's about politics or it's passive about your work or passive about your relationships, being too passive is not a good thing. So finding for everybody is different. So I, you know, people need to take an inventory of what's important to them. For a lot of people, it's, it's finding something they can really uh, do. It can actually have an outcome that they can control. They're not going to run for president. They're not going to run for Congress necessarily, but maybe they want to be on their local school board. Or maybe they want to just go door-to-door -to -door and get involved in an uh, environmental issue. Um, or maybe they want to get involved more in uh, women's rights. That they, you know, they were involved and then they got busy and now they, want to, they have more time and they want to do something uh, at the state or local level. So that's the kind of thing that most people feel they have a little more control over. And, uh, and a lot of people are doing. I'm working with uh, people in my practice who are in their 70s, 80s. Who are getting involved in their community for the first time in their entire adult life. Uh, I've, of course, a lot of millennials, they're um, wanting to get passionately involved uh, and want to, you know, for the first time. Uh, so it's very exciting, you know, on a number of levels to see people um, looking at all different kinds of issues that are going on in their community. And again, when, they're, when they feel they're, they're doing something that actually has some meaning, but also they have some control over, uh, you'll see a change in their health. Their health will be better, the people will be sleeping better, be eating better, um, they'll be more engaged with their family. Um, and uh, they generally, uh, you know, do overall much, much better. You can hear more on this topic from all our guests. Nancy Molitor there, therapist from the Chicago area, Minneapolis-based Irene Green, and Bob Thompson in Albuquerque, just by going to our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look up our June 2017 episode. Click on the picture of any of our guests to hear our complete interview with each of them. You'll find other links, a partial transcript to the show, plus hear scores of other programs on peacemaking dating back to 2002, all at peacetalksradio.com. That's where to go also to contribute to our nonprofit efforts here at Good Radio Shows Incorporated and Peace Talks Radio. Our work is independent from your local media outlet. Support also comes from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, KUNM at the University of New Mexico, and from businesses like the Spinal Health and Movement Center of Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.